I'm here. Love Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner. And I'm your co-host, Brian J. Henderson. Brian. Yes, sir. What happened in the news today? I heard you talking with Dr. Camp a few minutes ago. Yes, I just read that uh, uh, a stalwart Democrat just threw his support, well, actually switched his support from Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama, and that's civil rights leader John Lewis. Wow. And uh, he's a Democratic congressman from Atlanta, which when I read it, I was like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) But tonight, Brian, we're going to have a show that uh, some people don't want to touch the issues that some of the things that we're going to talk about. We have an expert with us tonight, and I'm just Mm -hmm. so glad that he took the time from his busy schedule to come in and talk with us. And we know that we're going to have thousands of listeners tonight, and they're going to be listening, wanting to hear about race issues and uh, all these crazy things that are going on. And, Brian, one thing, you know, we hear all the time when we go to the detention centers and the prisons and the jails, we hear that N-word being just thrown around so loosely like it's just nothing. Right. And you hear it. You hear it everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, and the ahead, one thing that I hear that, that so I'm, I, I'm almost confused by it when I hear this is that certain people believe that it's okay for them to use it when they're around certain people. They think it's, oh, well, that person can't use it, but I can use it. Or that person can't say it, but I can say it. Because I have some, some black friends and white friends. And some of my white friends use the word around some of my black friends, and it's no problem. But if they would ever use it around somebody else, they'd say, wait a minute, you said what? You know? And, you know, to me it's like, okay, if you're going to use the word, use it. It doesn't matter who uses it because it's still not a nice word. Right. You know? So just because you're a certain color or a certain race, it doesn't give you, like, the authentic authenticity on that word that it, it's your right to use it and nobody else. Yes, you know. Yes, another thing we've been hearing too, Brian, is uh, you know we were on MySpace today and I put a blog out about the show tonight, and I, I saw uh, someone put on there: Is Barack Obama black enough hmm. to be president? Well, that's definitely a question we can ask Dr. Camp. <laughs> let's, first, let's formally introduce him. Well, ahead, I'll take get a laugh out of you. Yeah, go ahead, Brian, and bring him in. I, I know he's ready to, to, to talk. I know he's probably tired. It's 9 p.m., but go ahead, Brian. Yes, we have dialogue facilitator, collaboration specialist, and diversity expert, Dr. David Camp, known as the race doctor. Yes, yes, Dr. Camp. What's happening, y'all? <laughs> hey, man. Apparently, you have so much fun today, you didn't hear about what happened. <laughs> well, I'm in, um, I am in Truckee, California, mm-hmm. and Truckee, California is where there's a whole bunch of ski slopes around. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, yeah, there was a black man out there both skiing and even snowboarding. Ha-ha! <laughs> so, uh, yes, it is the case that my news consumption during the last eight hours was less, uh, the last four hours less than typical. Yes. But, you know, I'm on top of things four hours ago, so things ain't changed that much, have they? No. No, they haven't changed that much. No. But are you ever asked that question, or do you hear that a lot? Is is is, Barack, is he black enough? Will he do what the American people want him to do, or will he just get in there and just be uh, a, a puppet on a string? Okay, so that, okay, so here's what I, I say that there's, there's all sorts of layers involved in that question. Like, is he black enough? So first of all, let me just say from the beginning that, like, I have my own analysis of various things that are political. Barack and Hillary and the Republicans and the word, the N-word. I have my own opinion about that. So, And I'm happy to, like, lay those out as we go on tonight. But the most important thing I want to lay down is that part of my goal is to try to set an atmosphere where we can talk about our different ways of seeing things. That's why I wrote the book called The Little Book of Dialogue for Difficult Subjects, because my own opinion is, like, we all have our opinions, but the real need is for us to have a conversation across lines of difference, whether it be racial or gender or ideological. We need to be able to talk about the different ways to look at things and try to form, what's, you know, of our differences, 
what can we make of that? You know, the whole, like, e pluribus unum thing, out of many, one, right? So what can we make of our differences? So I can, I'll lay out my opinion, but I'm also going to spend more time talking about, like, what we need to be talking about, right? Okay, so as far as Barack is concerned, like, I think that Barack, it's black enough. It's kind of an interesting question, but I think that that, that point, the question itself points out some things that need to be pointed out more directly. Which is, if his name was Gregory Turner, or if his name was David Camp, or if his name was any name you name that's more like a traditional American name, he, we probably wouldn't be talking about him now because he'd be too like American black. He'd be. We'd have to ask uh, who was Mrs. Camp. Who was Mr. Turner? And what kind of opportunities did, we, did they have or did not have that we have to talk about if we're going to talk about this man's narrative? So what I'm saying is, is that he's, on the one hand, the fact that he isn't, like, super black, he isn't, like, a, from the whole slavery tradition, actually helps him, helps us feel good about him collectively because he would, he would cause on the, like, the immigrant story that, that Americans can feel good about, and slavery's not in it. So on the one hand, we need to, I think that that's true. We wouldn't talk about him if he was if he was more from our tradition. But on the other hand, if he was just like a Joe White boy, like a, like, a, like another pretty intelligent, new white center, we wouldn't be talking about him either because he doesn't bring up the whole issues of reconciliation and putting the certain, certain issues behind us as a culture that we want to get past. So I'm just saying, I think the interesting question is, is he black enough? But the, but the problem is, if he was too black, we wouldn't be talking about him. If he wasn't black enough, we wouldn't be talking about him either. So I'm just saying the, the question is more interesting, and what it raises is more interesting than the actual answer to that question. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because that's almost the exact answer that somebody gave me. You know, well, if he was, if his name wasn't Barack Hussein Obama, we wouldn't be talking about whether he was black enough, you know, or, you know, and, and it's almost like because his name is Barack Hussein Obama, that name alone just brings out, you know, the naysayers, the negativity, you know, and, you know, it's already, it's already almost like he's been dismissed. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the issue with the way that uh, people have, you know, swayed this whole, this whole thing between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, you know, and tried to make it seem like it's a slugfest between the both of them. Because I, I do believe that both of them are equally adept at, you know, speaking and talking about the issues and discussing the issues. But, like, we watched the, the uh, debate the other night, and it was almost as if they went initially out to attack him. Well, first they looked like they were trying to attack Hillary, and she was getting, you know, visibly upset about it. And then they went on the attack on him. And I know this is a debate, but it was almost as if they were trying to launch separate attacks against the two to see which one would break. Well, I mean, on some level, I mean, we we all want this story to come to a good conclusion, right? Like, like I don't know if maybe what you said is true from a, a deep psychological level of the of the questioner, but I'm just saying on some level, like, there's a part of me that wants more drama. You know, I want I want Hillary to win, just so it stays out longer. But 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 ultimately, we want this thing to come to some conclusion that isn't messy and nasty and unregrettable, right? Absolutely. So so uh, like maybe you're right. They wanted them to break. Because you want some definitive, you want something definitive to happen, so that it isn't like a messy little thing, a, a messy thing with the backroom politicians and the superdelegates making a decision, right? We don't, on some level, even as, even if we're cynical about American democracy, we don't want the worst case scenario, right? Absolutely so, not. So I'm just saying, like, 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 if, if, if one could, one could argue that. You want you want them to ask difficult questions, be asked difficult questions that will make them break, right? That's what you want. Like, like, I, you know, part of me wonders whether or not we're asking these questions or asking them hard enough questions. Like, I want to ask both of them, what do they think about the people who vote for them, who because of who they are, and how do we put and what do we need to do with that? Given that the people who vote against them for who they are. So, Hillary, how do you feel about the fact that there are people who vote for you? Because, because you are white. How do you feel about that? And where should we put that? And where should we put that in relation to the fact that there are some people who vote for you because you are a woman, right? And Barack, same question. We ask them the same question. There are people who vote before you because you're a man and not a woman. How do you feel about that? And where should we put that in our own heads as fans of democracy? 
where do we put that in relation to the fact that some people don't want to vote for you because you're black, right? I'm just saying that we need to ask much harder questions of right. these people. So, and if it breaks them, that's okay, right? Yes. That, it's a, these people are running for president. They should be able to answer hard questions. And I don't think we're asking them the hard, hard enough questions. Yes. Hmm. Do, do you think the farther it get into the um, the the election, I guess once we have a winner uh, between Hillary and Obama, do you think at that point now we know it's going to get a little bit tough at that point? Once once someone, well, I think it's tough. I think it'll get nasty. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. I mean, because there's still enough anti-black and anti-woman sentiment in this country. It's going to get nasty, not just tough. But go ahead, brother. Yes. But you know what? I was going to say this. It seems that. The white men that I talked to, they cannot handle Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's almost as if this woman had their family in slavery or something. They <laughs> hate, really, they hate this woman with, uh, I'm talking about with a passion. It's irrational, isn't it? Yes, it's crazy. And then anything, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to vote for the other guy. What, what do you mean the other guy? You know, and 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 it's 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 crazy that the way that they come after her, and and they they kind of they come after Obama too now. They they come after right, right. So here's what so here's what we got to think about. Here's what I think about, right? right. Like Barack. I, first of all, let me just say, Barack's great. I went to school with Barack's wife, Michelle. You know, she was two years behind me at Princeton. She's great. I I love Barack, and I would even work for Barack. So. I am, whatever I say in the future of this conversation is not about slamming Barack. I'm just saying, we all got to ask, we got to ask ourselves as fans of democracy and us being part of the media, are we asking, you know, hard enough questions? Like, um, you know, Barack is, um, one of the things I would like all these people to ask themselves, uh, to, to ask is, like, of the media after them is, what are we saying, for example, about these deeply embedded issues that come up, like the, the, the gender discrimination, race discrimination, even discrimination on the basis of age? Like, what is our, what, how do we, what, how do we feel about that? Like, what, what, and what should we be talking about? How are we going to, as a society, move forward? Part of Barack's whole issue, part of his whole image, is that he. He alludes to a future in which people are actually like um, resolving problems across lines of difference. Well, what does that really mean? But I don't think he's been asked that question. You know, part of the reason that people vote for Barack over Hillary is because they envision that you know the, the whole change we can believe in, the whole cult following about Barack is on some level a a deep belief in that like our democracy can work and that people can across different across lines of difference can actually agree with each other and find common solutions. Well, we need to ask Barack, like, what does that really look like? We need to ask Hillary and McCain, for that matter, what are you doing about that? Like, this man has sparked a certain energy, a certain sort of cross-partisan energy. How do you plan to, even if you you win, what do you plan to do with that? Those deeper questions are not something the media is asking. And so on some level, I'm disappointed with the media for not asking the harder questions that I think are the core of these people's messages. With Hillary, you get, like, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to have a certain agenda. I'm going to fight for you. She's not talking about I'm going to bring people together across party lines. That's not her thing. So, okay, how do you plan to deal with the fact that there's conservatives who hate you? I mean, part of it is, is that she is hated deeply. Yes. Barack's not even honest about that. I think it's unfair the way Hillary is hated by some people, but we need to be honest about that. And I think that it, uh, the, the perfect Barack would be able to find a way to promote himself, but be honest about the fact that some people hate her because of unknown reasons we can't even figure out, like you were talking about at the very beginning. Yes, yes. yes. You know, and I think a part of the reason that people dislike Hillary so much is, you know, sadly because of Bill. You know, mm-hmm. when Bill and some of the things that, you know, that have happened with Bill Clinton and, you know, the past allegations of infidelity and the, you know, the I didn't do this and then, oh, yeah, by the way, I did do this. And so they look at her and a lot of, like, because you'll have a lot of feminists that will vote for Hillary and then a lot of them that will say, I'm upset with her because she didn't leave him after he cheated on her, you know. Or you'll have a lot of uh, 
you know, and then you have the rumors that people have put out about, you know, Hillary's orientation and stuff like that. So, you know, people <laughs> feed into that. And they believe it. <laughs> right. I, I forgot about those. You know, I thought those were a long time, right. You know, and the thing about it is you have people that are for Hillary that are feeding on that. Hillary's for us because she's almost like us. That's why she doesn't sleep with Bill anymore, right. you know. And, you know, and people fall into that trap. And, you know, a lot of it is spread by the media. You know, but what would you say about someone who says, you know, because I've had this conversation with a lot of older blacks. They're saying, I don't care what Barack Obama does. I'm voting for him because he's black. Well, we need a brother in there to look out for us. Okay. So, couple, first of all, let me say, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to mention another website that, uh, that I think people will be interested in. I, I, um, do your question. I started a website out of my frustration that as a collective, we're not talking honestly about the way that we vote for or against people based on who they are, their religion, their age, their gender, their race, etc. So the, the uh, website is called talkacrosspartylines.com. Just like it sounds, talkacrosspartylines. The main piece of that website is like a three-minute survey where you can, like, you know, you know, you can ask you can you ask a series of questions, like 13 questions, you know, about Barack, about Mitt Romney, about John McCain, I mean, you know, the, the, the recent people, and basically, to what degree to which you are, you for them, against them, based on who they are, the things who they are. So I think we got to deal with that um, as a collective, uh, as a collective, because ultimately these things all affect us. Like you know, no matter who, whether it's whether it's McCain, I mean, whether it's Hillary or whether it's Barack. When we get to the general election in the fall, those issues will be at issue. You know, and we have to, we have to, we need to practice now talking about that. We need to practice talking about, like, you know, am I for certain people because of who they are? And, and, and is that morally different than, than being against certain people? Is it morally different for me to be for Hillary because she's a woman and, or versus against Hillary because she's a woman? Is that different? And so, so I'm just saying, like, uh, those black people that you talked about, Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would I would take them back to what, what, what did Clarence Thomas get nominated, right? I mean, Clarence Thomas got a whole bunch of support from the black community because he was black. Now, uh, I heard I don't know if you you know Jill Nelson. She's like a a writer. She talked I heard her the other day. She talked about how she thought a big shift happened culturally when we realized <laughs> after elected, after Clarence Thomas got selected that it's not about tribe, it's about cause, it's about what you believe, because we saw, you know, Claire Thomas has made all sorts of, all sorts of rulings, backing up, backing up prison guards for knocking uh, people's teeth out, saying it shouldn't, that's not, a, that's not against the rule, I mean, against the usual interpretation of cruel and usual punishment, so I'm just saying that those people who, who you talk to, who one of those are black, black no matter what, I mean, I think Barack is great. I'm just saying, ask about Clarence Thomas. Like, you want to take the conversation deeper? What about Clarence Thomas? How do you feel about him, and how do you feel now? Because, you know, one, one could reasonably argue he's been a disaster for black people. Does, but it's not unreasonable to argue that point. Does Clarence Thomas ever talk? Well, he talks. He doesn't talk, he doesn't talk during the questioning period. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I, that's what I mean. Well, I mean, okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look. The dude, we know from his own biography that, oh, what you're referring to is the fact that during all arguments for the Supreme Court, he, he is rare to say anything. Like all the other justices are throwing their two cents in and asking questions, and on some level, indicating to the various sides of the dispute, as well as the press, what side they're leaning on, you know, not, not definitively, but suggestively. And Prince Thomas rarely says anything. Now, you know, it probably is the case that it goes back to his, you know, I'm a poor black child from Alabama City, wherever he was, and feeling insecure, and maybe that's understandable. It's, it's, you hope he would man up and get with the program, but I got you. Okay, whatever. But, <laughs> but on a basic level, you got a whole bunch of smart people, like, deciding to perform their smartness. Like, I'm, I'm going to be smart for everybody, right? I'm a drink for justice anyway. So, so it, on, at, a, at a gross macro level, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me that some justice saying, "All these people asking the questions, I can just chill and listen, and not be trying to form my great, great question." Uh, but on another level, 
it doesn't take the fact away the fact that my man has been a disaster for black people and probably will continue to be that until he is removed by his cold dead hands or whatever happens from the court. <laughs> <laughs> he don't seem like he's going nowhere no time soon. That's right. That's the problem, right? All the liberal judges are like old and like, okay, I'm going to move on. But the conservative ones are going to hold on, you know. Thank God for John Paul Stevens, 84 years old. He, he, he wasn't retired in 1999. Right? <laughs> 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 but then, they, then his old Supreme Court kept him in office, right, That's by right. selecting uh, Mr. Bush. Dr. Kemp, I want to change gears a little bit. All right. We talk about, you know, all the different race relations and the things that are going on in the political arena. There's one thing that really stuck in my mind uh, about an occurrence back in 2005. I think, was that 2005, Greg, the uh, Katrina, Hurricane Katrina? It was, yeah. Yes, that was 2005. I'm almost certain it was. It was 2005, Now, a lot of people have complained that even now today, a lot of the low-income and impoverished areas in uh, New Orleans still haven't been cleaned up, and they still haven't, and people are still fighting, you know, with their insurance companies, but yet there's been literally hundreds of millions of dollars infused into that economy by the federal government, but the, the folks who need it the most have yet to to see that money. Do you think that there's a do you think that if it had occurred in a place that was a predominantly let's just say a a predominantly non minority area, do you think that the response that was given would have been the same? Um, well okay. So I got you. The the quick answer is no. <laughs> um <laughs> Let's probe that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think, first of all, I've done a lot of work in New Orleans, actually. And I have actually, uh, one of the things that the listeners should know is that one of the things I do is large-scale engagements. So, you know, I, I do meetings ranging from, you know, 12 people, 12, you know, executives talking about the future of their company mm-hmm. to something much larger. You know, the, the biggest meeting I've done is 4,000 people all in groups of, Ten talking about the future of their union. But I did a meeting in New Orleans. That was the, purpose, the purpose of it was to help New Orleans deal with the planning process. So actually it was about a year and a half ago, December of uh, 06, and it was a meeting with like 2,500 people total, 1,200 in New Orleans, about 1,300 outside New Orleans in different cities connected by satellite. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of the meeting was to try to make sure that our people at various income levels got a chance to uh, weigh in on the rebuild plan. And then uh, later on, I did another meeting with uh, the recovery side on there, named Dr. Ed Blakely, who was my, that's my, my dissertation advisor at Berkeley, oddly enough, to help him like, get all the employees on the same page about what might happen, what they need to do differently in order to be more effective. So, you know, I'm not going to act like I know New Orleans back and forth, but I am going to tell you that I have a certain place in my heart in New Orleans and some, done some work there even recently post-Katrina. Now, do I think that... Um, uh, the things would have gone differently had uh, the situation been different. Of course, they would have gone differently, right? And had, had the racial situation been different, had it, you eliminate racism from 1619, right? You don't get the level of black people living in the really low-lying areas, right? I mean, right. New Orleans might get constructed, but you wouldn't have uh, a whole huge expanse of it, which were created in the 60s. Because black people couldn't live, middle class black people couldn't live in the middle in the middle class white areas, right? So they created a whole section of the city, which is uh, some level underground, used to be marshland, probably shouldn't be there, but they created that because basically racism created that area, right? So now it's nineteen, it's two thousand and five. We have a dilemma. The, 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 those areas are particularly underground. They get flooded, and then what do you do? Because those those, those areas have like actual representatives on the council. They have actual hundreds of thousands who live there, and not just black, right? And the black and Latin and, and uh, Asian actually. People mm-hmm. from Vietnam settled so in the same area that's underground, like the Lakeshore area, because right. I think it's called because of the racism that existed previously. So if you don't have that racism, you don't have the creation of those areas, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have the white flight that happened. Uh, uh, 
before Katrina happened. I think when Katrina happened, New Orleans was like 400,000 people, but before the white flight that affected almost every city in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was 600,000 people. So the city was smaller than it was previously. So, so you have those historical factors, but of course, I think that Katrina is an example of a massive cultural competence failure by an American institution, specifically the Bush administration. Um, you have people, you have uh, people in armed services who are looking at the people largely as criminals who need to be controlled, as opposed to a population that needs to be helped. Right. So, it, it, so if you if you add up the unconscious racism that I talk about a lot in my work with people, and you sort of amplify that up to a big, huge military contingent with skeptic with uh, those attitudes at the levels of administration, then you have a whole different attitude toward the, the population than other than uh, you would have if they looked like those the enforcers' grandma, right? You got people who don't look don't look like your grandma. They look like somebody else that you have all sorts of images about. So is your attitude to be you have to be more threatened by them and to be more cautious of them and to be not supportive of them as citizens, but rather skeptical of them as potential looters. Of course, were they looters? Of course, it's true, right? Looters, the looters who even you could morally castigate for looting, right? Of course that's true. You're a big population of people. So in answer, in answer to your basic question, yeah, uh, race, race issues affected that whole situation and affected even the level of outrage we feel as Americans in general about that. So even though I think this whole thing hurts the Republicans, and it should, you know, if those folks were not black, would it hurt them worse? Probably so. Okay, okay. So, Dr. Camp, I had a, a question. And you travel the country all the time speaking about race issues, and you're the race doctor. I want to ask you, why in this country at this, this, this age of 2008, why, is this, why can't we talk about race issues? I mean real race issues. Why can't we just sit down and talk about what's going on and be real? Well, okay, I got you on that. I'll push back at you. One of the hard issues as a, as a society that we actually do talk about well like, like we, we can promote the race issue if we don't talk about that well. I mean, but uh, are there issues in your – I would argue everybody got issues in their own family they don't talk about well. Right, right. Uh, some of that – so some of that maybe is a, is a function of, like, we collectively lack certain skills in dialogue, right? We lack the capacity to really talk to other people who look at the world on our same experiences very differently and to engage them in a way that, on the one hand, like, honest who we are, and honors who they are in our relationship, and looks objectively at the situation. We don't, as a collective, we don't know how to do that. So given that we don't know how to do that, we, I mean, we can't do that with our own families about stuff in our family. It isn't shocking that if you, if you broaden it out and, and decide, just for the sake of this metaphor, that Americans are all in the American family, it isn't shocking. We can't talk about, like, the deep wound in our collective family. We can't talk about stuff in our own family, right? So... So I'm just saying, so I mean I I still want to you know deal with your question but I'm just trying to point out that our lack of being able to talk about these issues isn't just about race like it's like it's about we we have trouble trouble talking about difficult issues that's why I wrote the book the little book of dialogue for difficult subjects which is like a five dollar book ninety two pages and you can get you can get it at bookofdialogue.com. And basically, it's a book I co-authored that's basically trying to give people some insights about, here's what I know about how to have difficult conversations across, you know, ideological differences, personal differences, different perspective, et cetera. Here's some principles that might be useful. So let's so go back to your question, like the race question. Why can't we talk about that? Well, I mean, um, do we really, do, you know, we got to ask ourselves uh, as people of color, do I really want to have a real conversation? We talked about, like, the degree which I carry around resentments among uh, four white people for all the stuff that's happened to me and to my people. I mean, that's difficult. I mean, if I'm really going to be honest about that, that's actually very difficult because I'm talking about, like, I'm resentful of the fact that, like, my level of wealth creation is a whole bunch less than my, like, friend my same age whose dad is even a second-generation white man, but when he, when his dad graduated from college in, in the early 50s, like my dad did, he could get a job, right? My dad couldn't get that job, and, th- and that, that job has implications for his wealth creation and thus implications for me. That's hard to talk about that. It's hard to talk about the fact that on some level, 
when I see, like, my brothers and sisters, some of whom have not done so well, that, and I gotta, like, deal with that. I gotta deal with their addictions. I gotta deal with the results on their kids. Like, that comes back on me. Like, that's, a, that's related to these larger issues in our historical, in our collective history. That's difficult. I'm frustrated. Sometimes I don't know whether I can handle that. If I do, I want, when I, I want to talk honestly about that with, like, you know, my colleague, white person who might be liberal on some issues and not on others. And I'm not sure how honest he's going to be about whatever residual guilt he might feel about that whole the analogous situation on his side, right? So I'm just saying, but uh, this isn't trying to put it all on black people. I'm just trying to say that um, if, we have, if we lack skills in talking about difficult stuff in general, we're going to lack it talking about this difficult problem in the American family, like the original wound of America. It's not shocking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes. Dr. Camp, we actually have a caller on the oh, line. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> you ready? I think I can deal with a caller. Okay, all right. <laughs> caller from the 352 area code. Give us your name, please. Thomas Nix. Thomas. Hey. This is Greg. How are you doing, Thomas? you have a question for Dr. Camp? Thomas, I have a question before you get to your question. Where is 352? Florida, down by uh, Orlando. All right. Okay. Well, I just had a comment I'd like to make him. Uh, when you guys are talking about the candidates for presidency, and I think you about the vote, about people voting for a particular candidate because of their race and all these other things, and I'm just really, I don't, I'm really disappointed in the major mainstream black media of how no one is addressing. And I know Greg heard me talk about this before yeah. about the situation with the illegal immigration system situation in the country, and when they asked Barack the question. He basically blamed it on scapegoating. And I know guys down here where I live at, guys who own small companies, and most of them in construction, and these guys are telling me that they're getting priced out of the business. And I think that's a major factor. Just whenever we have a large influx of, of um, low-earning, wage-earning people coming to the country, like they're flooding the country, that's going to that's gonna put black folks at a, at a really disadvantage other than any other race. But nobody, nobody in the black media won't even talk about that. So do you, I hear you, man. That is, that is there's a lot of truth to that. Do you know any Hispanic people as, as your friend, right, friends of yours who are one or two generations either immigrated directly or one or two generations away from that? No. Right. Yeah, I didn't think so. Neither do I, right? So part of, like, like I got what you're saying, right? Part of what happens, I think, is that because of social segregation, the fact that we don't know, that those people are not in our social network, like, we think about, like, the downside of all that. Right? The downside is, like, you know, my cousin, he can't ain't, he ain't get that job no more. And, I, and that's real. Part of what, um, and I think that that's a real thing and needs to be talked about. But the difficulty is that, like, if our, if our social system was different, and, like, I, you know, I had a, you know, I had a friend named Julio whose, like, brother just got over here, and he was taking that job, and, and now, thank God, now Julio, from, from the perspective of my friend, Julio is supporting his family here, he's contributing to society, he's sending money back home, you know, this, I, my whole perspective about that might be different, right, because, because my definition of who is us and who is them is different, right, now, like, I don't know those people, so they just them. But if, if one, of them, one of them was my friend, then this, I have a whole different feeling about it. So I guess on a broader, so, so part of what I want us to do as people who have been at the blunt end of essentially discrimination, Jim Crow, all these isms that basically keep a certain amount of folk in power, part of what I'm hoping we can do is say, well, okay, I need to be more empathetic to the possibility that, like, I just don't happen to know somebody on the other side. But if I did, I'd like them. I'd, I'd want to look at the whole situation, right? So well, the situation is those people are coming over to Enterprise, et cetera, and they're taking jobs away. There's some people doing them taking jobs away, but also helping the economy grow. Some of those jobs, they don't, they don't, my people don't want to do, really don't want to do it. Tyrone don't want to do it. So they're doing it, and thus I can have better lettuce, I can get my house clean, whatever it is, right? So I'm just saying a broader view looks at the whole picture, not just the reality that certain things from us are taken away. Well, I, I'm not looking. I'm looking at it from the standpoint. That if not, I don't believe. Well, first of all, I say I don't think that many Americans would pass on a lot of those jobs if they paid a living wage. The part, of, the problem is that they're, they're not paying a living wage. And when you have, yeah, you got Mexicans still doing it though, right? Yeah, because they're living in they're living in a situation where you got two and three men taking care of one household. Right. Exactly. So, and, if, and I don't think our government should support uh, a situation that's going to force Americans to live in that same that in that in that same predicament. You know, caller, I, I want to chime in on that. I think 
And, and I understand what you're saying, and, and I definitely understand the whole issue behind the illegal immigration. But what do you think the answer is? What I would like to see is I think the government should enforce the laws on the books. I, now, I totally agree with that. And that's why I have an issue with, with, the, um, with the, the idea of trying to build a fence. You know, I mean, they said defend the borders, build a fence. Well, we already know there are already fences up in there, and that hadn't stopped them because well, they're not just climbing over a fence. Well, you know, I, you could you could build a, a fence 100 feet tall. They'll just dig right underneath it or climb right over it. And so, and, and then what is enforcing the laws on the books? Right, but, but don't we get to, okay, but, but I think enforcing the laws on the books is really, I think that's a good place to start, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, do you think that about everything? Like, do you think that the government should enforce all the laws on the books on speeding? No, no. Well, well. Right. That, 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 right. Exactly. Well, okay. So there you go. You, that's you, what I'm would you equate? So part of what we got to deal with is the fact that, like, the government. Uh, we are. It's easy to say we can force laws on the books, and I'm in favor of that. But we don't want. I mean, the government needs to make good choices about which laws it enforces heavily and which laws it enforces uh, more in a relaxed way. Right. Uh, we want the government to do that, don't we? Yeah, we want the. Well, I'll say, but I don't think you can equate speeding to a situation that you're allowing people to come here and put a, such, such a financial burden on the country. No, no, I, 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 I'm, 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 in, in general, of course that's true. I'm just saying that, like, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm just saying that you've got you to make an analysis of, like, you've got some laws on the books. They're being violated. You've got to make a decision about how, how big of a problem is that. Just like you have a law about speeding is being violated, how big of a problem is that? We get a certain point. You gotta deal with that. We can people can disagree about like I mean the real conversation is how much should we be about enforcing those laws? Because I I, I agree with you that we just want some laws in the book. I might even say we might have so much immigration we actually make the laws tighter and enforce those laws. But I'm just saying the real issue is how much immigration do we want? And we can some of that's going to happen if we enforce the law. Some of it's going to happen if we are a little bit lax, but still enforce them somewhat. So the real issue, I think, is not, like, I, we can agree with the laws of the book. The question is, how do we really think about the way that immigration uh, benefits the country and potentially harms the country, especially harms certain people? That's the conversation we got to have. Let, well, me ask this, let me ask this question real quick before you guys, and, and, and anybody can jump in. We know that big companies are making a lot of money and saving a lot of money by hiring a lot of these immigrants. As far as the, the houses that are being built, the work that's being done, do you think that they're going to cut back and pay someone else a lot of money to do what they can get someone to do it for less? <laughs> that's that's really what it's about. My, my, it's my, my, um, my Econ 101 <laughs> training tells me that the bosses are trying to get the lowest possible dollar for their wages for that. That's what it's about. That's what that's about, right. There's so, no doubt about okay, that. Okay, here, here's the difficulty, right? I, I, you know, I have talked to employers in this sector of the economy, not a lot but some, who basically say, when you get Julio, who's fresh off the boat, can hardly speak English, but he, he is the guy. He is the guy who left his home to come to the U.S. He going to do it. Not only is he going to do what you say for, you know, $8 an hour, he going to do it and be happy about it and try to go the extra mile. Whereas you try to get, like, James, you know, my brother, yeah, don't want to do that. You know, he's not going he gonna, to he, take the – first of all, he don't want to get in the line for the job. When he get, when he get the job, he don't want to show up on time. When he, when he, when he get paid, he want to go off and – I mean, there are all sorts of negative scenarios about that, right? So I'm just saying, the question we got to ask ourselves is, is, as black people being honest is, what is the degree to which what hasn't happened is that we have created a class of largely men who can – come through economically and, and, and for their own families in a way to actually exploit the opportunities that these that Julio and Joaquin and you name you name it are taking. So, so, so I think that, that even if we aren't taking those jobs, there's still a deeper question about why is that. And I'm just saying that before we just decide that they, 
those people shouldn't come here. We got to ask those questions about what are, what is our government doing? What are we doing to make sure that black people can actually get and hold those jobs anyway? Because if, okay, well, if, if, if we're not doing that, those jobs need to be filled because we all benefit from those jobs being filled. That creates wealth. Well, Doc, you know, I I, I I would like to say first of all, we talk about people that come here illegally. We're not talking about people. I mean, we are we are a nation of immigrants, and I, and I don't think anybody would say I don't want any more people coming from other countries to this country. Only only thing I'm saying is I want people to come here to be legal. Okay, that's it. I'm all for that. You know, no, and, and I, I don't of, have no in any kind of big scheme, in any kind of big regime. There's going to be some float in any kind of enforcement of the laws at 65. The people who travel at 75. I'm just saying, like I got you, but we we we, we know there's going to be some amount of. Um, Float beyond the, the the strict legality. That's the nature of any kind of big system, right? Right. So, so I'm just saying, don't act. Let's not act like it's all about legal explicit, legal down to the last point because every law is enforced with some amount of of discretion. Yes. No doubt. Well, okay. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And uh, my my next thing I want to chime in on when you guys are talking. Uh, so I don't took over the show, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I was thinking about what you said about opportunities and all this and and things like that nature. And I would like to say the only person that's ever going to help black folks is black folks. We can't sit back and think that and the, 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 the educa- like on the debates, education wasn't even even talked about in the debates of the night. You know, and that's the only thing. And that's your that's that's your that is for anybody black, white, green, purple. Your only way out, your only way up is through education. You know, and I got I went late to have kids, and I go to the PTAs and the and the site meetings, and it's only maybe my wife and my myself with only black folks there. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you know, you know, it's a lot of black folks go to that school. What percent black is your is your is your child in? Say again. What percent black is your child's classroom? You're the only black people there, but I mean, I don't know, I don't know where you live. Well, is your child the only black child in the in, the, in her in her, in her class? Yeah, but she's not in that school. We talk about for the whole, we, we, when the site's about the whole school, right? And it's just a small school. You know, we live. She lives. We live out in the country a little bit, so it's a small school. It's not a very big school. I think they only have like seven hundred students in the whole school, one through K through uh, sixth grade. So it's not a very big school. Okay, but, okay. I have a point to make about what you're saying, but you didn't make your point. So go ahead. Well, I was just saying that though you'll think that as an adult. I know the only way that my child is going to have a, a, a chance at the, the gold rings is through education. And if and if you and if either people who I think have, who haven't done as well as they would like to have done in life, they can they can at this at thirty five forty years old they should be able to say you know what had I had a better education I maybe I would I would have went a little farther. And so I mean those people should be beating the doors down. We should be beating the we should be the first person at the PTA, the first person at the site, you know, trying to find out what's going on and be involved in our kids' education because that's the only way out. Right, I I hear that right. So. So, so the, then the question becomes, like, what are we doing to spread that message among our own people, right? And how effective we, I mean, how effective we are at that. I mean, and, and you know, I, I bet I suspect there's people in your family who don't take education seriously as you would like, right? Yeah, not my immediate family, but I got offsprings. Yeah. How do you, How do you deal with that? Well, I, I only I, I can only thing I can just tell them today that's your only way out. Uh, you got to be involved. Well, my, all my my siblings, they they're pretty much involved. Their kids' education, and they've all all of them have done pretty well. But, you know, but uh, somebody in the family. I mean, you answered the question like somebody in the family is not taking attention seriously enough, right? Yeah, is that well? Well, I mean, not my immediate family. I mean, I got cousins and stuff like that. But the right, people, so I, the, I, the I question is right. So the question becomes, how do we deal with them? Right? How do we spread our own message to them? Right? Sounds. I mean. You know, I, 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 my suspicion would be that you have tried to do that and it's been frustrating. Well, I, I well, my cousins, yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I try to tell them, hey, man, you know what? You, got, you can put your, you can you can put your kid in the prepaid college fund to make sure they got money for when they get old enough to go to school. The money will be there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to put a second mortgage in your house, or you won't have to go through these other different type of avenues, hoping for scholarships or hoping for grants. You can prepare yourself now for when they get. At college age, just these things will be taken. Well, how does that work? When you, when you talk to them like that, how does that work? It sounds like it doesn't work that way. They, they listen. 
I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't say shut up. <laughs> what? <laughs> they don't tell me to shut up. <laughs> right. So uh, what I'm saying is, like, 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 first of all, I think that your own inclination to talk to them is a great inclination. And so part of what we have to talk about, part of what, the reason why I wrote the little book of Dialogue for Difficult Subjects is because what my thing is, like, how do we talk to people who look at issues very differently, right? So what we have to, what, what we could talk about is how do you engage our own relatives who don't understand something as basic as the value of education, like how do we engage them in a way that's effective? But there's probably ways of engaging them that are not effective, and the ways of engaging them that are effective. And so part of what we have to figure out is how do we do that in a way that's effective? So, you know, like, like my, what I find is, is that on a basic level, like if, if you tell people, if you communicate to people that, like, how they're looking at the world is just wrong, and they need to look at it differently, that's not as effective as saying, you know, you see the world a certain way, and sometimes I find myself seeing it that way too. And I've got to fight through that in order to do something different. What I find is, is that that way of communicating is a whole, it gives a whole different set of results. And, and so, but, but, but even having me thinking about that or us talking about that is something we don't do because we don't talk about, like, how we talk to our our fellow black people, our family members, our fellow Americans, whatever. We don't talk about, like, how we even engage each other. That's why I wrote that book, which I want to, again, commend to readers. Get the promo, <laughs> bookofdialogue.com. Which is, I mean, and the book, like I said, is five dollar book. And, you know, so some people actually go to bookofdialogue.com and, like, they click through and order it, and they realize the shipping costs are the same as the cost of the book. So let me just buy some other stuff on Amazon in order to... Um, in order to, like, make the shipping cost equal to zero. But, again, um, my book has been described by a lot of people as very, very helpful for people on the, uh, uh, all the way from professional facilitators all the way to, like, Joe and Jane Average, who want to have a better conversation with around Thanksgiving dinner table, around holiday table or whatever, to give some insights about how you have conversations with people that ultimately want to be more effective. So I just want to commend the readers to bookofdialogue.com. You know, I want to chime in here and uh, kind of sympathize with the caller. I used to actually be a SAC committee person on uh, at a school in my neighborhood, and this was before my children were actually old enough to go to the school because I wanted to be involved before they actually got there. Even though they didn't go to that school, I got involved two years prior to them, you know, being old enough to go there. And I also was PTA president. And you're right, it was very difficult, and this school was 98% black. They had two Hispanics and one white child. Mm-hmm. And it was That's like difficult. pulling teeth to get the black parents out there. They would actually throw in assembly and have free food for everybody who showed up. <laughs> That's how they got the people out there. But to get food, exactly. Right. And well, because so, if, if we've, you know, for years and years and years, we have a history of going to these, like, you know, parent-teacher conferences and it being a real negative experience where we get talked down to or disregarded. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we're the, the, the public schools now, the schools now, public or not, they, they're, they're, they're operating in the face of all that history, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we can get, we can be justifiably irritated at our fellow uh, folks Black, black folks in particular for not going to that. But on the other hand, we got to look at, like, what's the history that creates that result, right? And what's the degree to which the school is trying to be culturally competent, trying to say, okay, we, we know that there's a whole negative history that some, some of us we didn't create, but that, but that we have to deal with that in order to really get the level of parent parental engagement that we need. You know, so we have to, I think we have to hold both sides accountable. Yeah. Dr. Campbell, I want to um, um, talk about the – an essay that that you had written about the N word. We mm-hmm. hear it on television all the time. Actually, uh, uh, keep going. I actually hear it about television. I, th- I find it is, is incredibly edited out on television. Right. Okay. Yeah, but you, you it, like on certain comedy shows, you hear it and you hear the beat. Oh, okay. You, 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 yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You'll hear the editing out of it. Right. Often. Right. 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 But when a white person says it. Is there a difference? Should we have more respect for ourselves instead of trying to hold the whites to a higher standard when they use the N-word? Shouldn't we hold ourselves to that same standard? Okay, so I'm happy to lay out my ideas, and I can tell you from the beginning, I think you and I look at it very differently. 
<laughs> so okay. let me just begin with that. Right? And that's cool. Let's talk about it, right? Right. So I, I think that um, that uh, black people using that word in general comes from a whole different place than white folks using that word. Right. So, for example, you know, uh, I go back to the cold Chris Rock, right, from his couple of, a couple of HBO specials ago, which is, you know, uh, I love black people, but I hate, yeah. you know, N-word, right? right. We, 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 we're not going to use the word on the show, right? Right, right. Okay, we're not going to use it on the show. All right. I love black people, but I hate N, right? Now, uh, and then he goes off to, to distinguish between black people and N, right? right. Now, my, my grandmother used that word almost the same exact way. Obviously, Chris Rock is a comedian genius. She wasn't as funny as Chris Rock, but she's making a point about what N does and what other folks do. Wow. Now, I think that that distinction, um, you know, you could say it, it, it's more problematic on a class basis, maybe. But on some level, it's talking about th- that distinction raises things for black people to be talking about. It raises uh, issues for us about irresponsibility, about, like, moral rectitude. It, it raises issues about correctness, being responsible. It, it raises all sorts of issues that we need to be discussing. Right, so, um, so, so, as a general matter, I don't think that I want to adopt a policy to call my grandmother, rest, rest, God rest her soul, is wrong using that word. When she used that word, we knew what she meant. It was, it was funny or amusing or not. It pointed, and then she was conveying something real. So that's on the one hand. Now, when a white person uses that word as a general matter, um, that's from a whole different tradition. That's what the, of a tradition of. Uh, the, the, the fundamental dif- difference is, like, I cannot be that, right? When, a, when my family uses that word, she's referring to the fact that she has choice to make about her life. She can be this or that. When a white person uses that word as a general matter in that way with the E-R on the end, not the A-A, so I don't want to focus too much on that. I'm just saying ter- different how people talk, talk about things. They're talking about, like, I am, I am other than that. And that kind of otherizing is, is not what we need if we're trying to form a coherent, cohesive, Democracy, right? That that's not that is a, that is that is out of the spirit of what our country is supposed to be about and what humans are supposed to be about. So, so I think there's a difference. Third thing, and I mean, I don't want to you respond. I actually think a double standard is okay too, right? Like, because I just set up a double standard. Like, okay, so it's okay for white people to use it, and not okay for white people to use it. By the way, I think that some white people use that term too easily, too freely. So that's a whole other critique. But what I'm saying is, I just set up a criteria that said. I can use it, if some people can use it, other people can't, I think that that is okay. Because if, if you object to double standards about that, let's have a conversation about double standards in life. Let's talk about how there's double standards in employment, there's double standards in housing, there's double standards in the legal system, there's double standards all over society. So we can lament the fact that there's a double standard around that word in, in David's ideal world, but then let's also talk about double standards other places. So that so all those reasons are why I think that that word needs to be limited but not gotten rid of. Right, right. Hmm. But you might feel differently. So we know what, what do you feel about what I just said? I agree with you. Wow, that was to me that was just a a wow. I never thought about it like that. It's well, almost like trying to get rid of that word is like trying to get rid of racism itself. Pretty much, Brian. We have a caller on the line. Uh oh. Right. Caller, caller from the 301 area code. Are you there? Hey. It's Denisha. Hello, Denisha. Hey, Denisha. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Good. We're doing How wonderful. How are you doing, Denisha? I'm great. <laughs> I have a story to share that's perfect to piggyback off of everything you just said. I have a uh, friend who only, she's a white female, only dates black men was married to a black man, she's like, oh, I can't stand white men. And I'm not going to turn this into the race issue, but this is what she came to me one day, and she was laughing, oh, because we're girls. And so she came, she comes to me and she says, yeah, when I was married, my husband came home one day and said, I'm the HN I see up in this place. And she turned around to me and she said, I told him, I know you are because you're the only up in this place. <laughs> <laughs> and... and, and <laughs> And I was just like, how ignorant, how ignorant of you to say it to me, how ignorant of you to say it right. to him, and how ignorant of you to be the kind of person who only dates black men, is prepared to have black children, 
and your view is still that when your child comes home, she is a pro- he or she is a product of you. When she or he, when he or she comes home and says, "Mommy, so and so called me the N word," you will still not see yourself in your child. You will right. still see that child who is a product of your your body. That child comes from you, and you would still see that child as being something that you will never see yourself as. Okay, first of all, I think that is, that's a great story. But is, isn't it the case that she shouldn't see herself? Right, like, the nature of being white is that and, and you can have black children, but you'll never be black yourself. So is she wrong to not see herself as her child? No, she's wrong. she's wrong to agree with society that her child is that. That's my problem. My problem is that, yeah, it, yeah, sure, I accept that society might see you as such. My problem is that you choose to date, marry, have sex with, procreate with black men, and yet you look at your little black child and say, yes, I agree, you two are an, are an in. I agree. That's so if she what didn't use the word, would you feel different? Like if she just decided that she didn't, she didn't use that word, but she, her whole, like, Ideology wasn't different. Would, would that still be a problem? She didn't no, use that the word. Problem, the problem isn't about the problem isn't about the word. The problem is the intent. The problem is who you are on the inside, and therefore what comes out of you. The word is only a representation of that issue. It's the word itself could be blue. I mean, it means nothing. Yeah. The word alone means nothing. Well, you, word seem like, you seem like you didn't like the fact she only dates black men. Does that does that bother you? Oh, it used to, but it was my point was in her only dating black men. The, the issue with that whole thing is that, and I don't really want to go here because it's not the purpose, but okay. my issue is that black men tend to think that some, some, sometimes their perception is that, oh, that's the come up. That's, oh, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Exactly. <laughs> I don't really want to go there. So that's for our next that it's, show. The, it's the mentality. It's, it's the mentality right. that's the that's, issue. That's an upgrade. Exactly. That's, <laughs> or that's the perspective. But that's... Um, that's the issue. It's the mentality when you use the word. It's the, that's the reason that we say, well, it's okay for other black people to say it because their intent is not to harm. I don't know. I mean, if like, I got to, I'm not sure I wouldn't feel uncomfortable with whole girls using that word. Like, even if she got black kids and all that, and we got black girls and all that, I, I got to just admit, I still have, like, a little cringe factor about that. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. So, so... I guess for me, like, I have to, on the one hand, I need to own up. If I'm feeling like that, I need to be honest about that, even if that's, quote, unquote, irrational or out of step with my stated philosophy. Uh, so, I, But, you know, to hear her doing that, I, that would bug me, I think. So I certainly understand if it bugs you, but I, you know, on some level, like, I'm not, like, I, I want to really probe this woman on, like, how sophisticated is her understanding of all of these issues? Because certainly it's irritating when you get like white folks who decide, oh, I'm hip enough, I'm cool enough, I can start using those kind of terminologies. I can, I, I'm down, I'm good, right? On some level, you could argue that's what Don Imus was trying to do, right? He was trying to get all hip and cool with using the whole like you know whole language as if that was all right. And dude, you can't. It's not. It's a little problematic when I do it. It's really problematic when you do it. Right? right. So, right. so, so I'm just saying, like, part of what we get though is now that we have an advanced media where, like, we control certain TV networks, internet networks, etc., that, that are public domain, then we're going to get people who try to who think they're cooler than they are. Right? So we need to figure out a way to put them in check, but to recognize that maybe their intent wasn't their intent might have been okay. That still don't mean it feels good to me. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Dr. Well, Cap, we have about a minute left. We want you to go ahead and give out your contact information. And, and about your book. Sure. Okay, so I, I mentioned two sites tonight, and I want to focus on those. Uh, again, as people can have heard, it's really important to me that people talk to each other in a better way, and that's why I wrote a book called A Little Book of Dialogue for Difficult Subjects. The way to get to that book, which is a $5 book, 92 pages, very simple and easy to use, is at bookofdialogue.com. It's dialogue with the G-U-E on the end. Bookofdialogue.com. A lot of people buy the book. The book is five dollars. The shipping cost is four dollars. So a lot of people like buy other stuff on Amazon, you know, to get the free shipping. But the, a lot of people find my book will be helpful. So that's number one. Second, um, people who want to at least see how people in society are are 